certifications, credentials, clearances, diplomas, degrees, and experiences. In our world, these things give us access to education, to employment, and status. They gain us an entrance into uh, academic discourse communities, intelligence communities, legal communities, accreditations, authorizations, recommendations, documentation, endorsements, passports, and licenses. These give us access to opportunities to, to driving, to voting, and more. We may have access, we may enter on the basis of what we possess or what we have earned or what we have done. We hold these things in our possession and we, we show them off to the right authority and say, I'm allowed here, I have a right to be here. This is the way so many things work in our world. But is this how things work with God? Do we show God what we possess? Do we show God what we have done, what we have earned? Do we show God our, our, our religious credentials? Do we show him our good deeds, our kind gestures and generosity? Do we show God what we have experienced and accomplished in this life? And, and does he respond and say, yes, Yes, son, I see that you have the proper, the, the requisite deeds to enter in. Welcome, ha have a seat. Are you here this morning in part because you want to know what it takes to get into heaven? It sounds like a great place, doesn't it? Who, who wouldn't want to go there? I mean, it sounds so, well, heavenly. And according to the Bible, it is. And I hope you have come here this morning in part because you want to know what it takes to get into heaven. If you haven't, well, uh, take a moment and change the reason for your coming this morning. It's allowed. And here's why you, you want to do that. Uh, psalm 15, the psalm that we're going to be studying together this morning, is all about who may dwell in God's heavenly presence. <laughs> what kind of person does God allow to dwell in his presence? Well, we're about to find out. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your Bibles, turn your Bibles to Psalm 15, and if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 453, page 453. Over the next several weeks, we're going to study a few Psalms. Psalms are, they're poems, they're songs, they're prayers from the ancient people of God. And it's my prayer that these ancient songs, written to show us what it means to live with faith and hope in the promises of God... It's my prayer that these songs will encourage and strengthen your joy in Jesus Christ. And as we begin our study of these psalms, we, we need to remember and keep in mind what Jesus has said about the psalms. In Luke 24, verse 44, Jesus said to his disciples, These are my words that I spoke with you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled. See, Psalm 15, the very psalm we're studying together this morning, finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And that he is the only one who may dwell with God because he has walked blamelessly. This is where we're headed with our study, even as we go back to the ancient past. If you've made it to Psalm 15 there in your Bible, then you'll likely notice an inscription that says something like a psalm of David. 
this description tells us the psalm's author. And this little detail actually tells us many other things too. It tells us something about the psalm's place in the flow of redemptive history. As you may know, the, the Bible is the wonderful history of God bringing his people into his place under his loving rule by means of his beloved son. It started in the Garden of Eden, where after God had created the world, he made his people, he made Adam and Eve, to live in his place in the garden under his good rule. Adam and Eve, sadly, they rejected God's good rule, and so they were thrust out of the garden, of God's glorious garden. And the Bible's unfolding history from, from that point forward is all about God's promise to send a ruler, a king, and a son who will bring God's people back to God's glorious garden, his dwelling place, to live under his good rule. Well, after Adam and Eve, history progresses and we meet Abraham. Through God's covenant with Abraham, we learn that it will be one of his offspring who will bring salvation to the nations. And after Abraham... History progresses and we meet Moses, where we learn that God's great ruler will be a mediator and a, a righteous keeper of the law of God. As Israel's history progresses still more, we, we meet David, a king. And through David, we learn that God's promised ruler and king will be one of David's descendants. He will be a son of David. And that is where we are in the history of redemption. We're reading Psalm 15. God's people are living in God's place. They're living in the promised land of Canaan. And they're even living under God's rule, under King David. But in this psalm, David, he, he raises a question. A question that has really been nagging us from the very beginning of the Bible. Who can dwell with God? David not only asks this question, but he answers it too. And this is what we have the privilege of considering together this morning as we study Psalm 15. Please follow along as I read Psalm 15 now. Psalm 15, a psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent. Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This psalm, it possesses a simple three-part structure. First, David poses the question that the whole psalm revolves around. Second, David provides the answer. And finally, David ponders the promise. We'll let David's structure be the guide for our study of Psalm 15. We'll study this psalm in three sections under these three headings. Posing the question, that's number one. Providing the answer, that's number two. And pondering the promise, that's number three. Let's begin with our first point, posing the question. And as we begin to look at this, just let me read verse 1 for us again. Set your eyes on verse 1. Here's the question. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? David, you see here, he poses a question. And perhaps you're thinking, no, no. He, he poses two questions. Well, yes and no. Uh, these two questions are really getting at the same thing from different angles. 
what we're looking at here is, uh, is ancient Hebrew poetry, where David is using a, te- uh, a technique called parallelism. Uh, parallelism is, is strewn throughout this psalm. And in verse 1, these parallel questions, really, they're, they're aiming in the same direction. They're really at the same target. Who can dwell with God? That's what these questions are asking. And notice that David asks the question of God. Verse 1 begins by addressing God. O Lord, who shall dwell in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who else has the authority to determine who may be permitted to dwell with God other than God himself? David asks the right person. And he asks about the right place. David's reference to God's tent calls to mind the tabernacle, the the tent that God dwelt in and was worshipped in before the building of Solomon's temple. After God rescued the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and assembled Israel at Mount Sinai, God instructed Moses and the people of Israel to build a tabernacle. This tabernacle, it was was a tent. It was a big tent. It was a tent uh, that was kept at the center of the nation as they wandered through the wilderness. When Israel stopped and settled for a brief time during their journey, they would set up their camp with the tabernacle, this tent, at the center. And the tabernacle was really the king's tent. It had a a table of bread and an altar for cooking meat. It it was the king's home. There was furniture inside this tent. Pause pause and take that in. God, he he lived, he tabernacled among his people. He, He lived in a tent just like they lived in tents. As they walked through the wilderness, he he walked with them. The the God of the Bible deigned to dwell with his people. And David is asking, who can enter into the king's tent and and feast with him? Who can eat with God and enjoy intimate communion with him? Who can have that kind of relationship with God? This eating with the eternal sovereign was also an act of worship. Not only did the king meet with his people in his tent thereby welcoming them into his home. You see, our God is a hospitable God. But he also received their worship. He received their honor, their sacrifices and offerings and gifts in his tent. Just consider what we read in Exodus chapter 29, verse 42. There we read, It shall be a regular burnt offering through your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. See, God, he received these gifts these things through his servants, the, the priests of Israel. The priests would meet each individual Israelite at God's tent and tabernacle. They would inspect their sacrifice, their, their offering and gift to God. And then according to God's prescribed pattern of worship, they would bring the gift to the king. This is what it means to, to sojourn in God's tent, to come and to meet with him in communion and worship. But, but what about dwelling on God's holy hill? Well, the idea is similar to that of sojourning in God's tent, really. In the Old Testament, the expression, holy hill, is simply a way of stating where God resides. As the Old Testament develops, even as the Psalms develop, the location of the temple comes to be known as God's holy hill. In fact, we learn in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 to 19, that that David even placed that tabernacle, the, the uh, the, the tent, in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, it comes to be known in the history of the Bible, as Mount Zion. And here in Psalm 15, David, maybe he has that location in mind when he's using this language of your holy hill. In the end, the question is really quite simple. 
Who can reside with God? Who can meet with God? Who can worship God, talk with God, walk with God, and commune with God? What, what an amazing and exciting possibility. Just think of what David is proposing. He is proposing the possibility that mere human creatures like you and me can meet with and relate to the great divine creator. Is that not staggering? You can meet with the one who gave you life and breath. Is that not something you want? To know and be known by God. If we're honest though, there's, there's something about the question itself that really rubs us the wrong way. Even with all the, the magnificent possibility embedded in the question, there's still something about this question that gives us pause. I mean, doesn't the question itself presume that not everyone may dwell with God? I mean, why else would you ask the question? Doesn't the question make us stop and say, wait, wait a minute, are, are you telling me that there might be something that prohibits and prevents someone from dwelling with God? Even the idea of sojourning and entering into God's tent tells us that, that we actually, we begin outside the tent. It's here, really, in considering this possibility that we come to realize that David has not only asked the right question of the right person, remember he's asked God who may dwell with him, but we also see that the question itself is actually pretty personal. Asking who may sojourn and dwell with God is just another way of asking, may, may I, may, may you, may, may we dwell with God? Have you asked that question? Have you asked, am, am I the kind of person who can dwell with God? Do, do you want to know whether or not you may dwell with God? Do you want to know whether or not you may be permitted to enjoy fellowship, communion, and a relationship with the God who made you and gave you life and breath? Some have thought very narrowly about the question of this psalm. Some have thought that it really uh, only pertains to entering into the ceremonial worship of God, of, of worshiping at that tabernacle. That's not unreasonable. In order to enter into the Old Testament tabernacle, you would need to have the, the right sacrifice, the, the right priest to offer that sacrifice. But the question of this psalm is, is actually bigger than the ceremonial worship of God. It, it certainly includes the idea of who may enter into the, the Old Testament worship of God, but but we also know that the earthly tabernacle and throne room of God pointed beyond itself towards something eternal. The, the tent of God, the holy hill, was a, a shadow of the substance of what was to come in full. The tabernacle itself was, was decorated with the images of the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2, the, the beginning of the Bible. In fact, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, we learn that a river flowed out of Eden. How can a river flow out of Eden unless it's set up on a holy hill? Even more to the point, the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 14, described Eden as being set on the holy mountain of God. So the question of Psalm 15 is not simply regarding who may enter God's earthly Old Testament tabernacle, the question of Psalm 15 is, who may enter into God's heavenly tabernacle? Revelation chapters 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible, picks up on the same images of Eden. Even a river flows out from that heavenly dwelling. 
And those chapters teach us that one day the people of God will live in the immediate presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth. The the question of verse 1 is a question that each one of us must take to heart. It's a question that we must pose to ourselves. May, May I, may I sojourn and dwell with God? Ask yourself that question. Because that's what David asks. David, he not only poses the question, but he also provides the answer. We are provided with the answer to the question in verses 2 through 5. Now, as we prepare to read these verses again, we must remember that while this is a psalm of David, it's also inspired of God. While this is at one level David providing the answer, at an altogether deeper and more fundamental level, God is providing us with his answer in verses 2 through 5. And as we consider these verses, we need to ask ourselves whether or not our lives match the answer provided in these verses. Are we the kind of person that David is describing in verses 2 through 5? Well, please follow along as we read verses 2 to 5. And just so you know, we'll stop just before we get to the very end of the psalm. Verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Well, if if verse 1 contained the question, we see here verses 2 through 5 contain the answer. Who may dwell with God? The answer? Only he who is righteous in wisdom, words, and works. Only he who is righteous in mind, mouth, and manner. That's the answer. The answer, it's it's not exhaustive. It doesn't say absolutely everything that a person must do and be and think. But the answer is exemplary. David is telling us that that these are the kinds of character traits that a a person must possess in order to dwell with God. These are the kinds of righteous acts that he must pursue. These are the kinds of of wicked deeds that he must not do. And in this description, we get both positive and negative. We get the, the general and the specific. We even get the internal and the external. The person who may dwell with God must have the kind of integrity that comes out from within. These are not random acts of righteousness either. Rather, this righteousness is characterized by the whole of his walk. Do you see that in verse 2? It's not just a step. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. See, the idea of walking in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is very often connected to a larger way of life. The, the path that this man has walked is one that is devoid of depravity. He, he can't be convicted of unrighteousness. But there's more. This man can be convicted of righteousness because he does what is right. His right doing stems from his righteous walking. This man's life is not merely void of unrighteousness, but it is full of righteousness. God positively requires righteousness of those who enter his presence. He can do no less, for he is perfectly righteous. So let's ask ourselves this. Can we be convicted of righteousness? Can we be convicted of unrighteousness? Maybe we've done what is right, but have we also done what is wrong? Are we 
blameless? This man does what is right and he speaks what is right. He speaks truth in his heart and he does not slander with his tongue. These requirements are piercing, aren't they? With his tongue, this man discloses the truth of his heart. He, he does not deceive. He does not conceal. He, he reveals the truth in his heart. Do you see how profound this idea is? The idea of speaking truth in the heart means that there's, there's no gap. There's no gap between his internal thoughts and his tongue. There's no discontinuity between his mind and his mouth. He is pure of mind and mouth. So often, we don't say everything we think, and this brings God glory. But what is being described about this man here is that everything he thinks, he can say. Because it is holy and righteous and good. He, when he speaks, he does not slander with his tongue. He, in the words of the Apostle Paul that we read earlier in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, does not let any corrupting talk come out of his mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Imagine, imagine speaking like that every time you opened your mouth. Imagine never doing harm to another with your tongue. Imagine never speaking ill of your family member, your neighbor, your coworker, or fellow Christian. The, the final words of verse 4 are, are convicting. This man does not take up a reproach against his friend. See, his, his words toward his friends are perfectly loving and loyal. We love our friends, right? And yet sometimes, though we love them deeply, our words are not always filled with loyalty and love toward them. Ch children, youth, uh, young adults, you, you love your friends and your siblings, right? Are your words always loving and loyal to your friends and your, your brothers and sisters? Do you always speak words of love, of grace, and truth to your brother or sister or friend? All of us. Let's just step back for a moment and consider this man's mouth. Compare his speech to the speech that you read this past week in, in newspapers and tweets and on Facebook walls. Did you read words that were false? Did you read words that were slanderous? Did you read words that were evil? Did, did you utter any words like that this past week? Did you utter any words this past week that you want back? Back in your mouth and different in your mind. What if you had no filter and all the words that filled your mind were in your mouth and made manifest to the world. Do you do and say what this man does and says? Psalm 15, it raises another question for us. Do we take the perspective that this man takes? Look at the first two phrases of verse 4. This man despises a vile person and he honors a godly person. If we were to put the matter provocatively, we could say that this man takes God's perspective on the righteous and the wicked. The, the only way that anyone can do that and not be guilty of sin is if their righteousness was perfectly aligned with God's righteousness. This man hates what God hates, and he loves what God loves. Closer to home, he loves those God loves, and he hates 
those God hates. Now, if you think that's too strong, then just go back a few Psalms to Psalm 5, verse 5, and there you'll find it explicit in the text. Psalm 5, verse 5 explicitly says that God hates the wicked. Psalm 5, verse 12 says that God blesses and favors. He, he loves the righteous. You know, we could get caught up in the uncomfortableness of verse 4 and start to sit in judgment on God's word. Or we can allow ourselves to be examined, tested, and confronted by the text. Do you, do you show honor to men and women who fear the Lord? Do you imitate those who are pursuing holiness? Do you point other believers to Christians who have helped you, who, who you want to be more like? Do you honor them by spending time with them, by, by listening to them and, and learning from them? Do you show honor to those who do vile things? And we might be tempted to dismiss this notion thinking to ourselves, nope, I, I don't have any time for the wicked. But could it be that we honor and learn from and listen to the wicked without realizing it? Right, the, the, the music and media and movies that we take in teach us something. We're, we're constantly being taught and instructed and catechized even by the world. Now to be sure, not, not all, all music and media and movies are bad. We, we, we certainly can't be hermits. Uh, we should engage our world. But that's very different than uncritically absorbing what we're being taught by the world and being surprised when it suddenly comes out of us. Be honest. Have you, have you ever envied the wicked? Christian, have, have you ever envied the wicked? Have you ever wished that just for a moment I could live like they live? They, they, you know, they seem to be so free, having so much fun. Have you ever envied the, the wicked person's prosperity and thought just, just for a day? If that's not you, then, uh, then you're better than Asaph, another psalmist who, who wrote in Psalm 73, verses 2 and 3. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Some pretty raw honesty. Asaph, he, he, he honored the wicked for, for a moment. Have you ever done that? In, in our celebrity culture, we can mistake what it looks like to fear the Lord. What if those who really feared the Lord were not always out in front, but often quietly behind the scenes serving? What if they, they went to work every day and gave their employers their whole day, diligently serving because they knew that they weren't working for their boss, but for God? What if they lived a, really a rather unremarkable life? What if they didn't have a lot of things, but were really grateful for all that they did have? What if they, they prayed before they walked into their home, asking God for help in serving their, their roommate or, or their family because they were feeling exhausted and, and frankly just really selfish? Well, I just would like some time for me right now. What if they, they prayed and asked God for help to, to fight that before they walked in the door? What if, if they, they read their Bible and prayed every day didn't boast about it or brag about it or, or really have any, frankly, deeply profound insights from it? What if they just took God at his word and tried to be obedient with as much light as they had? What if they were just an ordinary Christian like that? 
Do you know any of those? Do you want to be one of those? Then honor one of those by learning from them. This, this idea of not exalting a, a vile person, but exalting those who fear the Lord is really about loving what God loves. He loves ordinary faithfulness. He, he loves extraordinary faithfulness, to be sure, too. But it's extraordinary. It's rare. He, he loves ordinary faithfulness. He loves faithfulness that is sacrificial. See, this man at the end of verse 4, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. You know, you know what that means? It means he keeps his promises, though it wounds him. He's not going to walk away because it got hard. He said for better or worse, and right now it's worse, but he is going to stay. He's going to love like Jesus loves. You remember how Jesus loves? He keeps his promise unto death. And then he comes back to life to show his love for those who would wound him over and over and over again. Jesus was willing to suffer loss because he was unwilling to lose you, Christian. Do we keep our promises like that? Or do we look for, for loopholes? Do we uh, plan to escape pain through prenuptial agreements? Do we see if there's a way that someone else can bear the burden or the blame instead of being willing to endure the pain for the good of another? The, the latter portion of this answer is is outward and, and other-focused. This man who walks blamelessly does not put out his money at interest and he does not take a bribe against the innocent. These were specified requirements in the Mosaic law. The, the, the law of Moses prohibited the Israelites from lending to their fellow brothers and charging them with interest. We saw this in our study of, of Deuteronomy a number of weeks ago. The purpose of this law was twofold. On the one hand, you are pro prohibited from lending to your brother and taking interest in order to guard against taking advantage of his weakened financial position. In other words, do not harm them through your lending. On the other hand, you are instructed to lend to your neighbor in order to display God's generosity and grace. In other words, help them. The, these ideas of, of helping and harming are also found in the words, does not take a bribe against the innocent. See, taking a bribe against the innocent harms them. And refusing to take a bribe helps to uphold godly justice. How different would our society be if we were concerned to help our neighbor and not harm him? So, so how'd you do? How did you measure up according to this answer? Do you have the right credentials and qualifications according to this psalm? According to God, have you walked blamelessly, used your tongue truthfully, and loved others faithfully? May you dwell with God. Do you have the righteousness in and of yourself that Psalm 15 requires? Deep down in our hearts, we know that we, we can't ascend God's holy hill. Certainly not upon our own merit, our own righteousness. What does your heart tell you? It doesn't tell you that you're blameless, does it? And, and we can't compare ourselves to others. We can't say, well, you know, at least I'm not Hitler. Well, look, we're all glad that you're not Hitler. We're, we're grateful for that. But Hitler's not the standard. 
It's not the standard of Psalm 15. That's not the standard of God's word. The standard of Psalm 15 and God's word is blamelessness. It's sinlessness. It's perfect righteousness in every thought, every word, every deed, every minute, every day. Why is it that we're like this? We're not like this. Why is it that we're not sinless, but so sinful? Adam, the first man, was placed in the garden on God's holy mountain, as you may recall. We thought about from Genesis 2, 10, and Ezekiel 28, 14. The, the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us that Adam was, he was actually created in righteousness. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 29, we are told, God made man upright. That's what Adam was in Genesis 1 and 2. He was righteous. But it didn't take long for Adam to fall down from that holy and righteous state. Adam sinned. He, he stopped walking blamelessly. He rebelled against God. And since all mankind has descended from him by ordinary generation, we have all followed in his footsteps. We're, we're like our father, Adam. We have sinned like him. We have done the very things that he has done. In Adam, we are unrighteous. In Adam, we have all fallen down from God's holy mountain. And not a single one of us deserves, based upon our walks and words and works, to ascend God's holy hill and so dwell with him. So, is there any hope for us? There is. There is hope for us even in Psalm 15. For, for there is one who has lived this psalm. There is one who may sojourn and has even entered into God's tent. Who, who is the one who may dwell on God's holy hill? Who is the he of verse 2? He is the one who's promised in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. You see, immediately after... Adam sinned, and just before Adam was thrust out of Eden's holy mountain sanctuary, God promised Adam that he would send a son who would defeat Satan, sin, and death. Jesus is the promised one of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He's the, he's the one promised in Psalm chapter 15, verse 2. All, all you need to do is go and read one of the Gospels this afternoon, and you will find that Jesus walked Blamelessly, You come to the end of the Gospels, and the rulers who are trying to put Jesus to death, they can't help but say, this man's innocent. I can't hold this charge against him. He, he always did what is right. He always spoke the truth. This is revealed in the Gospels. But it's also revealed in the New Testament letters. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 to 23, we read this about Jesus. Jesus committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Jesus did this, not, for, not just for his own namesake, but also for us and for our salvation. And so we read in the very next verse of Peter's letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, you have been healed. See, God, he, he can't dismiss our sin. He is righteous, and so he, he must righteously punish our sin. And, and what 
the Apostle Peter is telling us is that Jesus took the punishment that was due to our sin. After having walked blamelessly and doing what was right in the sight of God, Jesus died on the cross for sinners like you and me. Being fully God and fully man, Jesus was the perfect representative and substitute for us. But death, it wasn't the last word on Jesus' life. For three days after his death, Jesus got up from the dead. He was, he was resurrected. He was vindicated. His resurrection proved to the world that he really had lived a blameless life. His resurrection proves that he can bring us into God's heavenly tent. And along with Peter, the apostle Paul, he, he confirms Jesus' blamelessness, his sinlessness. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says that Jesus knew no sin. And if Peter and Paul weren't enough, the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, that Jesus was tempted in every way that we have been tempted. And yet, he was without sin. Jesus lived Psalm 15. And he was confident of his future and of God's promise to him. So we, we need to turn now and consider our third and final point, pondering the promise. So please follow along as I read just that last line of Psalm 15. So we ponder this promise together. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is a statement of fact. But it's more than that too. It's a promise. It's a promise that the one who walks in righteousness before God will not be abandoned by our God. Our God who is an unmovable rock. The one who walks blamelessly is perfectly secure in God's love and care. This is one who can enter into God's holy hill and never be shaken out of it like Adam was shaken out of the garden. This is the one who can enter into God's heavenly tent. His place is in God's dwelling place. And his place there is secure. Here is a promise that Jesus, no doubt, held onto as he walked upon this guilty sod, and so became the Lamb of God who would be offered in the tent. As a, as a faithful Jew, Jesus prayed and recited this psalm. And as the great son of David, he lived the psalm his father wrote. Typically, this psalm, it was used, it was spoken and prayed by an Israelite pilgrim making their way to the tabernacle for worship. It was an ascension psalm. And Jesus must have prayed this psalm a number of times and he must have found this promise here at the end especially comforting. As he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness and offered the kingdoms of this world, Jesus was not moved off the promises he had from his father. The promises to make the nations his heritage from Psalm 2. And so he remained obedient and righteous. As he was tempted to revile in return those who reviled him, Instead of going the way of all of Adam's descendants, Jesus, he went a new way. Jesus continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so he used his tongue truthfully. As he hung on the cross and was slandered, as he was taking his last earthly step of obedient, blameless living, Jesus held on to this promise, enduring the cross for the joy that was set before him. Jesus, he knew his end. He knew that he would soon be seated at the right hand of God and he would not be moved. 
He knew that once he accomplished his mission of sinless living for sinful people, he would secure that dwelling place for them and dwell there with them. Do you, do you trust in Jesus and in his righteousness alone? Or do you trust in your own righteousness? Psalm 15, it, it teaches us that it's folly to trust in our own righteousness. It's folly because we don't have it. It teaches us that the path of wisdom is trusting in the one who, who lived this psalm for sinners like you and me. Friend, what, what will you plead? What will you plead when you stand before the throne of God? What will you say to the perfectly righteous and holy God who can only allow perfectly righteous people into his midst? What, what will you plead when you stand before the throne? You can't say that you live this psalm. You can't say that you live the perfectly righteous and sinless life. You haven't. I haven't. We haven't. You, you need to say, in the words of the hymn that we sang earlier, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what this toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Can you believe it? This is the confession that Christians make. We don't sell ourselves to God like we're trying to get a job. We don't show him our credentials or our resume. We don't show him how much we deserve to be welcomed into his abode. We don't show God our good works to gain access to his heaven. No, we say, I have failed. I have failed to live up to your holy, just, and righteous standard. I have sinned. We unreservedly admit that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Friend, are you ready to admit that? We admit that we've sinned. While at the same time declaring that, that Jesus, that he is all of our righteousness, our only hope. So we say in the words of, of that great hymn, no other work but yours. No other blood will do. No strength but that which is divine can bear me safely through. Friend, this is the confession that a Christian makes. Make that your confession today. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Believe that he lived for you and died for you and was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins so that you might be welcomed into God's presence. And we can be certain of our acceptance with God if we trust in Jesus. We can be confident that God will accept us into his holy hill through Jesus. This is what the scriptures teach us. Turn in your Bibles to, to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, I, I think you can find that on page 1004. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. The, the, the writer to the Hebrews, the writer of this letter, he's, he's in the middle of reassuring his hearers. He's in the middle of of telling them that God has given believers a sure certainty of the forgiveness of their sins and a welcome into his heavenly dwelling because of the superior high priestly ministry of Jesus. As we read this passage, pay attention to the language of entering God's holy tent. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast 
anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. That's a reference to the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, God's tent. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see, Jesus is a forerunner. He, he goes ahead of us, not merely into the tent of God, but into the innermost part of God's tent. Jesus has gone into the Holy of Holies as a forerunner. And what does that imply? That we are going into the Holy of Holies after him. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Now, flip forward a few chapters in Hebrews to chapter 10. Verses, verse 19, that's page 1006, I think, of the Bibles provided. Watch, watch how the writer to the Hebrews um, picks up the entering the tent imagery and pay careful attention to his instructions for believers. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, really, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See here, we see that Jesus has gone ahead of us as our forerunner. Let us follow him with confidence and enter the holy place. The, the writer is saying, don't stand outside the tent anymore. Come on in. Follow Jesus into God's presence, and on your way, help others follow him too. What does this mean for us? That's the question I want us to answer as we conclude. The the last line of Psalm 15 is a a plain statement of fact. It's a promise that we have in Jesus, and it is also a prod that pushes us on to righteous living. We could read Psalm 15 and say, yeah, I can't do that and give up. Uh, we, we could read this psalm and say, Jesus has done that. and just keep going about our business as we always have. Neither of those responses to Psalm 15 are right. The right response to Psalm 15 is this. I haven't done that. Jesus has done that. And now... Depending on Jesus' strength and power, I'll do that. Christian, you must live Psalm 15. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, he walked this way. You've got to follow after him in this way. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, then you must, by God's grace, endeavor to live a blameless life. Speak the truth. Remain faithful to your promises and love others. Yes, yes, you are going to do that imperfectly. The Lord knows that. We, we all know that about each other. But he also calls us to do this increasingly by his grace and strength and power. 
Remember the last line of, of the psalm. He who does these things shall never be moved. A living faith is an active faith. A real faith works. Paul said that we are to work out our, out our salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, the apostle John said, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. See, Jesus, he has entered the heavenly tent. His blamelessness and righteousness is what gives us access to God's dwelling place. And brothers and sisters, with joy, we're called to live Psalm 15 in imitation of Jesus. Jesus lived it for us and for our salvation, and now we joyfully live it for him. Until we reach our destination, until he calls us home to his holy hill. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you be gracious to us and bless us. Give us the, the gift of your spirit. Give us that certainty in Jesus that we have a home in glory with you. Remind us that we have no other work, no other blood, but Jesus to depend upon. And so help us to live trusting him and following him all the days of our lives. We pray and ask for his glory's sake and in his name. Amen.